It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne, she, her. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from around the world who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab your cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This is one of the many popularly used quotes by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., taken from what's known as his I Have a Dream speech, delivered over 60 years ago during the historic March for Jobs and Freedom at the Lincoln Memorial. And while his I Have a Dream speech was delivered in the context of the civil rights movement and African-Americans' ongoing fight against racial injustice, since then, it has been deployed by a wide range of groups from across the U.S. and even around the world, from Black, white, Asian, and Latino from liberals to conservatives. How is it that such disparate groups with various interests find meaning and support for their causes in these words? How is it that they can lay claim to Dr. King's dream for their own visions of the future? These are the questions at the heart of Dr. Hajar Yazdiha's book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. Hajar Yazdiha is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, faculty affiliate of the USC Equity Research Institute, and Sifar Azrieli Global Scholar. Hajar researches the politics of inclusion and exclusion, examining the forces that bring us together and keep us apart as we work to forge collective futures. In addition to being the author of The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, she is also a public scholar whose writing and research has been featured in outlets including The New York Times, LA Times, ABC News, The Hill, and The Grio. Hajar joins us today. Hi, Hajar. So glad to have you here. Hi, Sana. It's so good to be here. I have to tell you, I was so excited to see your Book, the Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. I think I'm especially attuned to any work about the civil rights movement and particularly about Dr. King, since you know we're here in Memphis, Tennessee, that is where WYXR is broadcasting from. And Dr. King is such a central part of how we think about ourselves as Memphians. So I'm always interested and excited to learn more about him, about his memory, about how he's being taken up and used um, in our culture. And so your book is doing exactly just that, helping us understand and maybe think about this use of memory, this use of the civil rights movement and this use of, you know, icons from the movement like Dr. King, how it's being used in a variety of different ways um, by a variety of different people, actors, organizations, Organizations. And so I'm just so glad that you have this book that's really outlining for us how folks are using these memories of the civil rights movement and why. 
Yeah. I mean, that's so, it's so funny. I was just listening recently to your episode with Bobby Smith second. Yes. And I was just, I was blown away because that was also a history. I didn't know talking about, you know, the food politics of the mm. civil rights movement in Mississippi. And so if listeners have not listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. It's really good, really insightful. And yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was this question of how, how memory gets really separated from history yeah. So I think we typically think of them as like the same thing. We think, you know, if we remember it, it must be the history. If there's history, we must remember it. And I'm kind of showing that they become severed and that that's a political project. So one of the things that's been really interesting in being out here talking about the book is that folks want to hear about, you know, the true history of the civil rights movement. And mm -hmm. I say right in the introduction of the book, I am not a civil rights historian. Mm -hmm. I am, if you want to call it, a historian of the political misuses of yeah. Dr. King's memory and civil rights memory. But those are two distinct things. So, I mean, I'm always happy to talk about, you know, the true history, but I never claim to be a historian. I'm definitely a sociologist. And I'm like, let's talk about the social and political dynamics. Yes. But I think that's so important because like you said, we we have this idea that if we remember something, it must that must have been how it really happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that what we remember is the totality of what happened. Right. And those are not true as you outline in your book. Yeah. And I think what I, you know, I came into the book, the whole sort of motivation for me was understanding how these right wing groups could be using Dr. King's memory in such a disingenuous way, but mm -hmm. showing up, you know, on the front of the New York Times, like the media was legitimizing it. It had kind of become this mainstream account that Dr. King believed in colorblindness and he didn't want us to talk about race. And so that was the question that really drew me in. But then it really became much more of this question of, you know, how is it that people remember the past so differently and what's actually going on under the surface? Because it can't just be that, you know, oh, we live in different places and have different experiences. That's a one small part of the story. There is this larger story about how collective memory gets made. And that is the political process that will disturb you when you go back and find out, you know, just how they distorted it in the service of rolling back civil rights. Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, I know that you're not a historian, but even just like bringing some of that context that you, you know, provide in the book and just different ways that folks even in, you know, in during the civil rights movement were already crafting narratives and using, you know, speeches like Dr. King's or or other pieces of, of the civil rights movement to their own agenda. Yes. Again, mind blowing, right? Because we, you know, currently today have a memory of the civil rights movement, how we think about it. And it is a very incomplete memory. Um, but that is for a specific reason, right? These narratives are crafted for a very specific reason, what we learn, um, how limited or how expansive again, for a specific reason. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting too, to think about, like, I'm sure your listeners, you know, it's not news to them that Dr. King's memory has been distorted. It's like you said, <laughs> it's literally everywhere. You can't go a day without somebody quoting Dr. King in some egregious way. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really been eye-opening for me is that it's not just about trying to write out the messiness of the past. Because I think that's kind of the typical story of collective memory is you want to have the rosy memory. You mm. want to have something that you know can make the nation proud to be itself. Like it's part of the collective identity. It's rooted in this idea of who we are. But, you know, what I've come to find is that it's not just about writing out the messy parts. It's also about defanging protest in general. Mm. And so 
if folks can't remember that they were able to come together and mobilize against the systems of oppression, if they can't remember how it was done, then they will think that, you know, it was just like people coming together, holding hands, and they were nonviolent, which meant that they were just really friendly, smiled all the time and wore nice clothes, right? So like these simplistic narratives that miss all of that deep relational building on the ground and, you know, coming together and organizing and learning political education, all of the pieces that went into it. And so that's the other piece for me that's been really pivotal is drawing that out. Like, what would we actually think we were capable of if we understood the extent of the past? Mm. Oh, that is so important. And you talk about that in the book too, how people are able to re-educate and revive those memories, but also those collective mobilization strategies. And I think that's so important. Um, before we go any further though, I want you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by a collective memory. Yes, this is one of the key concepts of the book, and it's the one that I think is probably the most misunderstood because, like I said, it's often conflated with history. Mm -hmm. And so collective memory is a process of storytelling. It is a cultural and political process. And so, you know, when these key moments in history are made, there is a process of remembering them in a selective way. And of course, you're always going to have to write out certain aspects. I mean, that's just part of memory. We can't remember every, I can't remember what I ate yesterday, <laughs> right? So, you know, even individual memory has those sort of pieces that are fraught and hard to remember. But when it comes to collective memory, it is really foundational to national identity. And so it will be these key moments in history that become part of the collective memory of the nation. And then these are the parts that really drive these larger political questions about who we are, where do we draw our national boundaries, who's considered one of us. Mm -hmm. And as we know, I mean, these are the questions at the heart of just about every political debate right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's so important, as you mentioned, because here this collective memory is shaping our idea of who we are and then who is included in the we. And then again, what protections need to be put in place um, or what we need to guard against or who we need to protect ourselves from. And so this idea of collective memory becomes so, so, so important. It really does. And if you think about even some of the divisions that we're facing right now, like thinking about, for example, the idea that our memory is that we're a nation of immigrants mm. versus the idea that we are a white Christian nation, you know, at mm -hmm. the very core. These are two collective memories that are doing very different things and yeah. being used in the service of very different politics. But one of the things I really emphasize in the book is that we have a tendency to do a kind of both sidesy sort of treatment of these memories where we think, well, you know, people just experience things differently. And so it's just, you know, different ways of understanding the past. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what it really is, is there's a an asymmetry. There's a power imbalance there where yeah. one of them is really committed to upholding dominance, upholding white supremacy, the status quo. And the other one is really rooted in collective liberation. Mm -hmm. And I think making that distinction can help us think about what are these memories trying to do? And then, you know, who do they serve? Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. Bringing that 
bringing power back into how we're thinking about memories, how we're even approaching, you know, ideas of quote unquote, both sides, right? Wanting to give both sides um, equal space, right? Where is the power in this and power that is doing what, right? And again, that question of what and for whom. And particularly, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, media and how media gives legitimacy to these kind of both sides or these different arguments in a way that um, decentralizes power or, or, or moves the focus away from the power relations that are actually yes. being played out. Yes, that's exactly it. And, you know, people have asked me in the wake of the book, like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? And like one piece of many is hold media accountable because mm-hmm. they have been complicit. You know, of course, they want to represent all the kind of sensationalist things that are happening in the news. But in the book, I show that they are just much more likely to cover these kind of right-wing political distortions of King because they are clickbaity, you know, Mm -hmm. because they get eyeballs on the page, as opposed to Black communities' resistance of those distortions. And there's that question, again, where it's like, who does this actually serve, right? What what is this media for? And who do they think that their audience is? And Mm -hmm. so I think some of those larger questions can also help us think about the kind of cultural institutions that uphold the status quo and that oftentimes go unnoticed because we're Mm -hmm. always looking at, you know, electoral politics, like the people we voted for. And there are all these other institutions in society that that are responsible for the way that things are. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important reminder. And I love how you weave that throughout the book, like really helping us stay focused on the multiple different social institutions that are contributing to how we see, again, how we see ourselves, um, how we make sense of or interpret some of these different social movements that are happening as well. Um, Because it is, as you discuss in the book, there are multiple um, level process happening. And so we have to, again, have a multi-level approach to how we're going to address, you know, different inequalities um, that we're experiencing. And that, I think, is really one of the big strengths of your book is using that multi-level analysis. And I really, really appreciated seeing that. Thank you. I feel like a fellow sociologist would appreciate it. So I see you. Um, (laughs) But you know what? Like, I think that's one of the frustrations I've had is that it's you know, where you have so much of jargon in sociology. And so it can be hard to really translate exactly what this means on the ground. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, it's like, I'm trying to show that these levels are interlinked, right? That it's not just about what individuals are doing, that individuals are embedded in groups. And then those groups are embedded in larger structures. And the structures, you know, have that top-down process of enforcing power. Mm-hmm. But also that power can come from below. And that's yeah. the power that I'm most interested in. Yeah, I mean, that focus on the on the ground work, I think is really key. I'm just thinking back to what you said um, just a few minutes ago about thinking about mobilization and how mobilization happens and those actual strategies and tactics on the ground. And I I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want people to grab a copy and really (laughs) dig into it. But you give us such great examples of how folks on the ground are mobilizing, are also learning, again, learning from the civil rights movement, learning different strategies, but also how the power that is within groups of people on the ground to resist kind of those bigger, broader organizations or institutions. Yes, yes. I mean, I think for me, especially right now, and I think this is kind of a dark period, you know, we have so much division and there's so much violence. Um, And I think everyone's kind of trying to make sense of it. And it's easy to feel really 
sort of desperate and hopeless in this moment. And mm -hmm. so it's actually been those cases, kind of going back to these moments where folks find transformation by turning to the past. I mean, they mm -hmm. realize that this is not the first time people have gone through something like this and that people have come together before to resist. And that, yes, of course, it doesn't mean they've always had these mass successes. You know, they haven't necessarily stopped wars, for example, mm -hmm. but they have created these infrastructures on the ground of activists. They have changed people's minds. They've created forms of political consciousness that actually transcend and go beyond the moment of mobilization. So mm -hmm. I always say, you know, mobilization matters beyond the kind of immediate goal that they might have, because yes. we do know power is come like really, really kind of committed to itself. Mm -hmm. It wants to reproduce itself. It's going to, you know, hold on to it with its bloody grips. And so, you know, we can't always think like, okay, we're going to change the whole system. But, you know, that kind of like movement from below for me is really where you're seeing the cracks, you know, mm -hmm. and I th think that gives me hope for something that could happen. Uh, I love the idea of hope. I mean, that is really uh, like what keeps me tethered um, to move forward, right? Because as you yes. mentioned, there's so much happening, uh, you know, here, abroad, um, and it's like everything all at once, right? Um, yes. And without having that hope, it can be overwhelming and we can, you know, feel like, oh, you know, what's the point? Uh, but in your book, you show how different groups, you talk about different immigrant groups, but also religious groups um, who were able to connect kind of their present struggles um, to past movements. And again, find hope in knowing that, okay, folks have been able to organize against inequality um, or against oppression. And no, it's not solved, right? Mm -hmm. But there has been some forward movement, right? And we can continue to move forward and, and press forward and, and hopefully find more ways and new ways to create solidarity with one another as we're fighting against oppression in whatever form that may be. That's right. Yeah. And I think solidarity politics is for me one of the kind of motivating forces of all of my work. Like this question of what brings people together in kind mm -hmm. of sincere alliances, you know, for the long haul to understand that our fate is tied up with one another, to understand that our destinies are intertwined. All of these questions that were, you know, at the core of Dr. King's philosophy, these are the questions that haunt me, right? They keep mm -hmm. me up at night because I think the, the political strategy of divide and conquer is so effective. So and effective. I see, right, and I see folks falling for it all the time. You know, even the ones that are like the most educated and you know have all the critical education, it's it's easy to fall for because mm -hmm. it distracts us. You know, it's yeah. kind of like the Toni Morrison quote about how racism is a distraction, right? Yes. And these divide and conquer strategies move us away from the work that we're trying to do to try to put out these little fires to be on the defensive and say, well, no, that's not what I mean. You know, I'm not against that group. And that's not what the, we need to be doing, right? And I think, yeah, I think for me, so thinking about the the two chapters that I think you're referencing. So I have one chapter on the immigrant rights movement, mm -hmm. and they're facing off against these nativists. And then there's another chapter on the Muslim rights movement, and they're mm -hmm. facing off against the Islamophobia movement. And in both of these chapters, I think as an immigrant myself, what really resonated was that they first come to the table with, I think, what many people come to the table with when they come to this country, which is a kind of assimilationist perspective where they think if they just fold themselves in and you know kind of keep quiet, work hard, 
then they'll have this upward mobility and they'll eventually feel accepted. Mm -hmm. And there's that process of learning over time that for one thing, that model is based on positioning themselves against Black Americans. Mm -hmm. But there's also part of that process where in kind of pursuing aspirational whiteness, they bump up against the boundaries and they realize I will never be seen as white. This will always be provisional inclusion that can be removed at any moment. And mm-hmm. it's those realizations that often turn them toward understanding themselves as racialized in a system with Black people. And that has been transformative because that's where the coalitions arise, where it's not just a performative, you know, I'll show up at this protest or hold up a Black Lives Matter sign. It's like, wow, we are actually facing the same carceral systems, right? Immigrations, the deportation system, and, you know, thinking about Muslim rights, thinking about the surveillance, Patriot Act, all of these things, racial profiling intertwined. They're under the same system. And so when you come together, you have the power to actually mobilize against that system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that goes right back to that shift in identity, right? So, you know, as I was reading, and even now, as I'm hearing you talk about those two chapters, you know, I'm thinking again, back to that collective memory, right? So if we tell ourselves that we're, or we believe this narrative of we are a nation of immigrants, right? And then as Mm -hmm. an immigrant, I come in and I feel like, oh, we're a nation of immigrants. Like we all have these same opportunities. We'll be folded into this national family. I I might feel like, oh, these are assimilation strategies are what is going to make me be included, right? And and give me access to those same rights and responsibilities as all other folks in this nation. Um, but then we find out that's not exactly correct. Yes. <laughs> right? That kind of memory or understanding of who we are as a nation is leaving out, right, big pieces of the history, big pieces of our story. And so I think there is such importance in, and you talk about it in the book, in, you know, shifting both individual perceptions of how people see themselves, but then also those collective perceptions, right, as groups or cross-racial solidarities, as groups who are um, positioned, again, against oppression um, in in all of its many forms. Yes. And it's, you know, especially for those of us in these immigrant communities who, you know, have kind of taken for granted some of the built-in anti-Blackness, I understand that it can be hard to confront Something that's like, you don't have hate in your heart, right? You're not like, oh, I really don't like Black people. But Mm -hmm. then, you know, you have to question at some point, why is it that I think of the white neighborhood as the neighborhood I want to be part of? Why is it that I think of, you know, that white occupational trajectory as the one that my children should pursue? Mm -hmm. And thinking about these deeper questions of, you know, what am I losing in this process? What parts of my humanity am I giving away? And for what? I think that's Mm -hmm. the real question that a lot of these kind of immigrants and the Muslim rights movement, these are the questions they're facing. And it's one that I personally experienced. You know, I I was a Middle Eastern immigrant who uh, experienced 9-11 the first week of my first uh, year in college. And, you know, that was uh, it was a radicalizing moment. You know, these these are the moments where your political consciousness is awakened and you realize how other people really see you, you know, so the blinders come off. And though it can be so painful, I think ultimately it leads to a lot of transformation and a lot of liberation of thought, you know, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be so committed to trying to fit yourself into spaces that don't want you, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about that, those moments of political awakening, you know, for some people, they are able to to use that moment as a transformation and to, you know, find those solidarities. And for other people, they stay really committed, right, um, yes. to the status quo. Um, but I think your question of, you know, what what cost to my own humanity is it for me to continue to buy into anti-Blackness, for example? And I yes. think that's a really important uh, question for all of us to ask ourselves. Um, and I'm thinking particularly among Asian Americans, right? This is a conversation that comes up a lot in Asian American communities is interrogating anti-Blackness within our communities as well. Um, and, you know, for some folks there, we can have these conversations and we can, you know, again, have that awakening and that reckoning. And for other folks, that pull to really just adhere to the status quo and and hope that the, uh, you know, the promises of assimilation will, <laughs> will work, you know, that's a very strong pull. Yeah, you know, you're right. And it's, if you think too about like the DEI push after the 2020 uprising, like every corporation put out a statement and hired a DEI director with absolutely no experience in DEI. Mm -hmm. And when you think about those moments, so many times it's really about the representation question. Like if we have the face, then we're good. We did our job. And we've seen how that pans out, you know, when it's too often that the United States is sending a Black American to go represent them at the UN to justify mm -hmm. bombing people abroad, right? Yeah. And so when you think about the meaning behind that and the symbolic work of using Black Americans to do your dirty work, mm. that's something that comes up a lot in the book where that's <laughs> the right-wing strategy is they realize, oh, we're going to look racist. And so yeah. what we'll do is we'll get a Black American on board and make him the, the messenger of this, mm -hmm. you know, you know, saying Martin Luther King would be opposed to gay rights, saying that mm -hmm. he would be opposed to affirmative action. We will make sure that a Black American delivers that message in order to absolve ourselves of the mm -hmm. perception of racism. And I mean, I even look to the Nikki Haley's, you know, the mm -hmm. the folks that have really aligned themselves with whiteness and then kind of drawn out their ethnic identity when it's convenient. Yeah. you know, used it as a symbol, but then really maintained that idea of like, I am the symbol of the American dream, you know, maintaining that myth of meritocracy. Yeah. I mean, thinking just about, again, that symbolism, right? So symbolism of drawing upon maybe the words of Dr. King or the civil rights movement or the symbolism of having that, you know, exceptional racial minority who yes. is going to be the the champion or the loudspeaker for whatever um, kind of very conservative um, or oppressive, you know, ideology. And we yes. see it time and time again, unfortunately. We do. And it's an open question for me. And I mean, I would be interested to hear what you think. But one of the sort of deeper issues that's come up when I've talked to different publics about this work is this question of, you know, if we were to reclaim Dr. King's true roots, we were to reclaim the radical King, would everybody use him? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the, the short answer is, of course not. You know, the right wing groups are not going to be using the king that was, you know, against militarism, that was mm -hmm. against capitalism. They're not interested in that guy. So I think it's this open question of, you know, how much do we want to be infusing that false memory with true history? And then mm -hmm. how much do we also want to just move away from this idea that we have these celebrities that we mythologize and hold up as kind of the heroes of these historical moments and in that process obfuscate? all that hard work that actually takes place on the ground and the folks who are doing it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, it is that question of like, you know, we need our our icons, right? We need yes. those people that we are able to conjure up. And part of it has to do with having that that shared, again, that shared memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that shared knowledge base that we can draw upon um, that helps us, you know, helps unite us. And so I think inherently there's always going to be the use and misuse. Yes. Um, because as you're talking about in the book, right, we have this collective memory that we think we can all lay claims to for whatever purposes that we may have, whether individually or, you know, as the groups that we're part of. Yeah, 100 percent. And I think I also think a lot about this idea that, you know, despite the fact that the collective memory from above has been distorted and whitewashed and sanitized you know, for the kind of mainstream American public, it's not like black communities ever bought into that. Right. Mm-hmm. They're, on, they're on the ground remembering the true history. They're remembering their own family's relationships to yeah. it. And there's also a longer timescape. So we're thinking about ancestral lineages that go beyond even enslavement. Right. The idea mm-hmm. that African peoples have identities beyond racism in this country and these systems of oppression and that it's really those ancestral histories that are guiding this long view where, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, maybe the change doesn't come tomorrow, but we keep fighting and it's worth it. And mm-hmm. it, I love the Dr. King quote that we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Mm-hmm. I think it really speaks to this idea that, especially for activists who are just kind of coming in, they want those immediate gains. They want those wins because otherwise they're like, what's the point? You know, and there's a, there's a kind of a quick burnout. There's a quick disillusionment. And so keeping that long view in mind, I think, is what keeps you going. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you brought back up this idea of time and like where we're anchoring our time to or our memory or even our future vision, right? This concept of time, which I really appreciated you bringing that in. And and I would actually be curious to know if your work would be expanding more on this concept of time um, as well, because you talk about in the book how um, different groups are, you know, removing, you know, Dr. King, for example, um, from the time period, right? From the context in which he was talking and from, um, the meaning th- that his words were meant to have during that specific time. But then even as you mentioned now, thinking about as we're fighting um, for, you know, equity or fighting against oppression, you know, what is that timeline of of the future, right? Is that, you know, where is that future might, where might it be in this generation, in the next generation, in multiple generations from now, right? And how is our orientation and relationship to time then, then impacting the actions that we take and even the meaning that we're giving to our actions in the present. Yes. So now that's for me, one of the most exciting things to think about is the question of time. And I mean, granted, I'm like, you know, deep in Octavia Butler right now and just, you know, all the (laughs) Afrofuturism and just thinking about even time travel. Mm -hmm. For me, that's, I think, a really valuable way to think creatively about the future. But I mean, for me, the question of time too is we so often think of it as like this finite measurement. You know, it's like, okay, we have this measurement of time, minutes pass, years pass. But time is symbolic, you know, and then it's also unequally distributed. Mm -hmm. So when you think about your own kind of life course, do you think, you know, many years ahead or are you just surviving day to day, right? What does the fierce urgency of now look like for you? And I think that that really shapes this perception of where you stand and then also just how urgent it is that you take action. 
And I think a lot about, you know, the the kind of idea that you could have a long view of, you know, maybe the, the systems completely change in the future, but the change that I'm going to make right now needs to be just as urgent as if, you know, I thought it was going to happen tomorrow. And I, I think it's too easy to slip into what Dr. King called, you know, the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Mm. I just love the way he puts that, that metaphor, because that <laughs> is what it's like. Like, I think folks really think that social progress is just linear. It's just going to happen on its own. It's just part of human life. But we know that's not true, right? Right. So oh, yeah. it, it takes that work to maintain the idea that, you know, time is something more than that measurement. It is the symbolic. It is what helps you carry your own individual past into a future, you know, even if you don't have children, like no matter what that means, the legacy that you leave behind and the people that you leave it with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this concept of time, as you talk about it in the book, and even now, um, I too am like really thinking more about time just in my personal life, but then also, you know, collectively as well. And what I thought, um, was just so important and really struck me was it was towards the end of the book. I think it was in the last chapter uh, where you're talking about, um, you know, this process of truth and reconciliation mm. and really thinking about, again, the past. And so you're talking about how folks understand that, you know, their belonging in the future is contingent upon writing their existence into the past. Yes. And yes. that just struck me um, so deeply Um you know, that we're thinking about, okay, we often are thinking about the future and imagine future, um, but that future is linked to the past. And if we, our group, do not exist in the past or is written out of history, then how can we be imagined as part of that future? Yes, that's it. I mean, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because for me, that that was one of the passages that I hoped would hit and kind of drive home just why it's so important that we remember the past and kind of the extent of it, all the people that were involved in it, mm -hmm. because it is that question. In that chapter, it's about Black feminism and the way that it's interacting with the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And these white feminists, you know, many of them very well-meaning, have to contend with the fact that like they have written Black women out and they've written mm -hmm. Black people out. That has been a strategy. You know, mm -hmm. they've positioned themselves as the victims of the Black man over time. You know, Black women have been left out of the story. And it's really in reckoning with that. And mm -hmm. that's part of the story is these internal reckonings that can be so powerful. Sure, maybe we're not going to have a national reckoning that truly confronts the past, that mm -hmm. truly acknowledges and pays for it. But I think within groups, these internal reckonings can be just as powerful because they do open up some space to actually come together on shared ground and commit to a shared future. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's just so powerful. Again, it just makes me think about, you know, how we might be measuring success, right? Is it this national reckoning or is it also these reckonings internal to various groups? And I think that's also important to think about too, particularly as folks are organizing and as folks are maybe getting involved in a cause, hopefully for social justice. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's lots of different <laughs> causes, right? As you talk about in the book. Um, yes. You know, thinking about like, what is the measurement of success? And again, I think that goes back to the, the, the idea of time as well, right? So again, yes. what might success look like, you know, in this moment, in the communities that I'm a part of, and 
not feeling defeated or hopeless that success isn't, you know, a complete, you know, national or global reckoning, right? Yes. Um, in, in the next month. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's it. Because it's, it's like the whole mantra of you think globally, act locally. And there's so much truth to it. And part of that is also because it, it gives us much more of a sense of purpose. If we can see those relationships built in real time, if they actually, you know, kind of help the world around us, whether it's, you know, your neighbor garden or your schools, you're thinking about the infrastructure of your cities, wherever it is that you get involved in your local community, that's kind of the core of the civil rights movement's work. And, you know, we're always thinking about their legal gains as the big successes, but a lot of it really was that consciousness building on the ground, showing people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have thought they had much agency, that they actually had quite a bit. Mm, yeah, so important. Again, it goes back to what you said earlier. Like if we don't understand the histories of different social movements, then we will think it, you know, we won't understand all the, the different strategies on the ground that were happening simultaneously. Um, we'll have an incorrect view of what it really means to do that on the ground work and to stay committed to it over time, over years, over decades. Um, even when we think about the civil rights movement, we're often thinking about um, a very, you know, a set number of years, maybe during the 60s. Uh, but what we know is that folks were, you know, working towards civil rights both before and after the time period of what we might think of in our minds as quote unquote, the civil rights movement. That's right. Yeah, there's like that long trajectory. It's all the way back. The resistance has always been built in. And especially now, you know, new movements come out, you have a lot of, you know, Gen Z activists in the streets, and folks are so quick to criticize their tactics, their ideas, to think that they're too disruptive, they're too demanding. And they often say Martin Luther King Jr. would roll over in his grave, you know, he'd be <laughs> so disappointed in you. And folks said this to Black Lives Matter, which is mm -hmm. hilarious, because it is a clear continuation of the unfinished work of the civil rights movement. And I think a big piece of writing back some of the truth of history is just what you said, the, the truth of what struggle looks like, the fact that the civil rights movement was deeply unpopular, mm -hmm. right? Dr. King, people hated him, right? 75% mm -hmm. of the public really despised him in the last year of his life. And that even after he you know, was martyred, that in the 15-year struggle to create that Martin Luther King Jr. holiday... People said just about every horrible thing you could say about the man. He was communist, adulterer, you know, that he deserved what came to him because he was the one that created those violent tactics to begin with. And when you understand that piece, that, you know, real struggle requires disruption, it requires disrupting the status quo and everybody's comfort. That's when you realize like, oh, this is actually a cornerstone of democracy, Mm -hmm. So protest is not anti-patriotic. It's actually one of the most patriotic things you could do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, just having that shift in understanding, right? Um, and that can be a, a huge hurdle for folks. As you mentioned, I was thinking about um, something you say in in the book, um, you say the making of a King national holiday only solidified the idea that the civil rights movement was a collective American accomplishment, a moral triumph of American exceptionalism, a turning point in the arc towards equality for all to be celebrated by all Americans. 
And I think even, you know, if folks dig in more into your book and you talk about how the King holiday even came about, right, um, mm-hmm. that then we start to shift and maybe interrogate a little bit more, you know, why do we have this MLK holiday? What does it represent now, but also in the past? And what are maybe pieces of that struggle for even having, you know, this national holiday that might help us think differently about the ways that we are maybe engaged in our communities today? Yes, I love that. I mean, it's too easy to use the holiday as like, oh, it's a day off. There's a sale, you know, like it's turned into, right? It's just like a beautiful capitalist accomplishment that it's all about the consumerism on the MLK day, you know, at worst. And then at best, it's oftentimes just like a day of service. People Mm -hmm. are like, oh, go do service in your community. And yes, it is important to do the service, but it is more important, I think, (laughs) to root that service in the larger question of, you know, what systems am I kind of challenging here, right? How much work am I doing to reflect on myself and my own complicity in some of these systems? And I think that has to be an ongoing process. It doesn't just have to happen on MLK Day. It doesn't just have to happen in Black History Month where we think about the past. I think part of the failure of American, I think, education and culture is that history is really obscured. There's a deep historical amnesia, even about things that happened 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. When I think about the reactions to the anti-war protests right now, I'm like, did we all forget? So many of us were out in the streets 20 years ago, you know, protesting against the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the, you know, part of the job really should be like developing a practice of rooting yourself in history, whether that's your community's history or these larger national histories. And it's not just about knowing more, but it's about understanding more where you live, why things are the way they are. And why does my neighborhood look like this? You know, why is it that we don't have a grocery store within, you know, 10 blocks? Mm-hmm. All of these questions, I think, do help you understand just how those larger systems have been perpetuated. And that, you know, even on MLK Day, that the work is not done. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I mean, just reminding us again of power, right? Of having that that eye towards the power relations that are inherent in our everyday social life, right? Yes. Um, I think is just so key. And I love what you said about making it a practice to really rooting ourselves in history um, and not to, you know, feel guilty or not to get stuck in a point in history, but rather to use that as information that that we can then do something about our present with, right? And so I really love that idea of just really continuing to interrogate our history and go beyond kind of the sound bites that we might, you know, be familiar with, but really trying to learn more. Yes. What you said about not getting stuck. I think that's so key because collective memory is a living, breathing object So if you put it behind glass, if you don't let the people touch it and let it grow with time, then it's not going to serve any use in society except to root you in that specific moment. It's not going to allow you to transform and, you know, pursue collective liberation with other people. So I, I do think having those kind of porous boundaries around collective memory where not to let it get distorted, right? but to let it serve other purposes that that might actually advance some of the core goals of that moment to begin with, which in this case means thinking about how MLK was really pursuing these global solidarity struggles. I mean, that's really Mm -hmm. what was going on when he was speaking out against Vietnam. And it was, again, so unpopular, but it was time to break the silence. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And again, something that a lot of people don't know about Dr. King, right? Uh, yes. We often don't learn that part of who Dr. King was, was having that eye towards um, oppression on a global scale, but also liberation mm -hmm. um, on a global scale. And that collective liberation, uh, I think, is so, so key. Um, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. Ah. <laughs> so I want to just ask you this, you know, what are you feeling hopeful about or even maybe what is giving you hope in this moment? I've, you know, I've said this a lot that Gen Z gives me a lot of hope and they, you know, they get a bad rap. People always look to the youngest generation as, you know, they're the rabble rousers, they're ungrateful, they're self-centered, but they truly are seeing the forest for the trees. They are eyes wide open. They know that the way that we have done things in the past few generations over and over again, hamster on a wheel, those are not working mm -hmm. and they're fed up. And I think that it's a productive kind of anger and discontent that could lead to something revolutionary so long as we don't shut it down. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I will say, of course, it always gets repressed. Like this is how, you know, radical movements always work is they get co-opted by the state. They get oh, surveilled, yeah. right? Divide and conquer. And so then again, you know, the hope is that the political consciousness that does get built on the ground is one that can be infused into community work, into community organizing and building more spaces of liberation within. But mm -hmm. I think the second thing that does give me hope is also these kind of global struggles for solidarity and liberation. And it is a way that I was raised as a humanist. And so my parents, you know, did not believe in national boundaries. It was always a fiction. And we know this, you know, sociologically, we know that they are socially constructed, but of course they become so real in our mind that oh, yeah. we think it actually means something. Mm -hmm. And so being raised in this way and then now seeing so long after I was like, mom, like, uh, don't say that in front of other people, that this is something people are really talking about, really mobilizing around. It, mm -hmm. it gives me a lot of hope. Uh, I love that. Yes, let us all remain hopeful. And, you know, your book gives us a lot of ways to really interrogate hope even more and tie it to concrete strategies. So thank you so much for writing this book. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. This has been so lovely. Thank you again to Dr. Hajar Yazdiha for joining us this morning. You know, I am always excited about a book that ties into us here in Memphis and, of course, here in this book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. I'm thinking about it and viewing it and reading it through the lens of being a Memphian and through our own history with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And again, with him being assassinated here, with the National Civil Rights Museum being here. And like I mentioned, when Hajar and I were talking with Dr. King being such a central part of the story that we tell ourselves as Memphians, but also I think that historical moment that we are maybe even stuck in sometimes here as Memphian. So it gave me a lot to think about. Um, but even more than that, or in addition to that, I always love a book that helps me think through some of the big ideas, but also gives applications for things happening on the ground in the moment. And we talked about it in our conversation, but in the book, Hajar is talking about different organizations that are, of course, using the memory of the civil rights movement, using the memory of different civil rights icons um, to tether their own movement or their own organizing 
into. Um, and she talks about some of the practical strategies that people are learning by relearning the civil rights movement and by actually digging into what was happening on the ground. And I think that is so important, that memory work, that re-remembering so important. And she mentioned, um, I love that she mentioned one of the previous conversations that we had, one of the previous guests on the show. She talked about Dr. Bobby Smith and his book, Food Power Politics. And that was a really fun conversation. So if you did not get a chance to listen to us talk about Food Power Politics, the food story of the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement with Dr. Bobby J. Smith II. Definitely go back and listen to it. That was episode 112. Subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. That makes it super easy for you to go back and listen to previous conversations or even re-listen to today's conversation. I always like to re-listen because I find that I miss key points or, or just ideas Um you know, through the course of just listening the first time. So it's always fun for me to go back and and re-listen as well. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. I'm here every Monday having engaging and insightful conversation with folks from around the world, you know, about what they know and applying that knowledge to this moment that we are in. I'm so glad that we were able to spend this time together. And I just want to leave you with this positive note, this reminder that each and every day you get to decide. Yes, you get to decide what type of day you're going to have and how you're going to show up in this world over time. It is those daily choices that create your life. And I would say that create our world as well. So what are you creating?